Welcome, everyone, to episode 93 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking in-depth about the cheeriest movie you could imagine for these quarantine times, the opioid addiction drama termed crime thriller, Castle in the Ground. Before we get to that, however, Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Scott. I had a, uh, a big weekend this past weekend, one I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Um, obviously, my expectations of what that weekend would hold had changed uh, over the past couple of months with with everything that's gone on. But um, had my birthday on Saturday and then had uh, my law school graduation on Sunday. Um, and I have to say it was still a really great weekend. My birthday was honestly one of the best I've had in, in a while. Um, and virtual graduation. I won't go that far, but it had, you know, it had its perks. Uh, and I, I still look forward to the in-person ceremony that's going to happen in November. But um, yeah, no, it was it was it was a really great uh, and, you know, surreal weekend, I guess you could say for me. Yeah. Speaking as someone who has also had a quarantine birthday, it doesn't have to necessarily be the worst worst thing ever. Yeah. You, you make it work. And uh, I know that you had a bunch of kids, a bunch of, fr- of your friends get on a zoom call and uh, it seems like you guys had a good time. Yeah, we did. And I mean, like to your point, you know, who knows if I would have been able to get all of that group together to like actually do something in person if we had all been together. Um, but you know, when we're all at home, when it's via zoom, it was a lot easier for, for people to attend and participate. So that was, that was an upside. Especially when there's nothing else to do. Yes. Uh, going on. It's not like That's they can do anything else. Uh, yeah, no. So yeah, look, it definitely is a be- uh, nice weekend. Where I'm going to start calling you my co-host, Scott Harvey Esquire now, I take it. so Please, yeah. yeah. So, uh, please, I prefer that to Dr. Dr. Scott Harvey, which I think technically I can be called now as well. That's crazy. I know. Wow. I mean, I knew this day was coming. I guess I never really thought about it, though. It's, it's wild. But uh, congrats, man, on both turning. Thank you. Both on being closer to 50 than you are to being born, but also on the Juris Doctor. That's a, it's an incredible I, I accomplishment. I'd... I know I don't seem too doctory, but uh, I, I will try my best going forward. With that, why don't we go ahead and tackle a subject that, even though I don't believe we've talked too much about in any movies uh, that we've discussed on the podcast, um, but we'll, we'll be talking about a movie that did remind me a lot of a 2018 film that I did see called Beautiful Boy, and that is the Canadian-American opioid addiction drama Castle in the Ground. Directed by Joey Klein and starring Alex Wolf in the lead role, Castle in the Ground opens in 2012 with Wolf's Henry devotedly caring for his ailing mother, Rebecca, played by Neve Campbell. Rebecca has Hodgkin's lymphoma, but between her relapse of cancer and her budding opioid addiction, thanks to her Oxycontin and fentanyl patch prescriptions, she isn't getting better. And one day, after an emotionally raw outburst at Henry for refusing to give her a fentanyl patch after having already taken an Oxycontin, Henry relents and gives her the patch. Next thing we know, Rebecca has passed. Either from the cancer or from the opioids, the movie doesn't make it entirely clear, although I think I'd lean a little bit towards the latter than the former. And of course, Henry is left to wonder, like the viewers, which it was. But maybe it ultimately doesn't really matter. Full of raw emotion, claustrophobic cinematography, and performances from Wolf, Campbell, and Imogen Poots playing Henry's new opioid addict neighbor, Anna, Castle in the Ground weaves a hauntingly predictable narrative about addiction as the remainder of the film tackles Wolf's descent into an opioid addiction following his mother's passing, as well as the ruinous consequences that often come along for the ride. Scott, did Castle in the Ground strike a raw emotional nerve with its harrowing and at times hopeless tale of addiction, or did you find it to be grim, bleak, and hopeless, all without a purpose? Yeah, not so much the latter, I don't think. And I mean, that's something that we've talked about with certain movies recently on the podcast. I mean, Joker is one that comes to mind right off the bat of movies that, you know, are are very unpleasant to watch, making the turning point kind of, are they saying anything? Is there anything important really about the movie? Is there any reason for it to exist? 
Um, and I think with Joker, the answer was no, of course. With this movie, I, I can't say that. I think I think this movie, despite being very hard to watch at times, um, absolutely justifies its existence because it's really shedding some light on a really underrepresented problem that is plaguing our country for sure. Um, like I know that North Carolina, where I li lived for, for school, has you know some very serious problems with the opioid crisis. Thousands of people um, have died, and I, I mean they're certainly not alone. I mean West Virginia, Missouri, states like that I know are, are really heavily affected by it as well. Um, but yeah, so so it, it kind of almost like I almost got some like Florida Project mindset of like this is a movie that is shedding light on uh, an underrepresented community of people, you know, people who are affected by the opioid crisis and just a under underrepresented societal problem in general. Obviously, the problems are, are different in those two movies, but that uh, did come to mind when I was watching this film. And I think it's it's successful when it focuses on being that sort of awareness raising. Um, drama about the effects that these drugs have on people's lives. Um, and I think it's less successful in the last 30, 40 minutes when it sort of ratchets up the tension um, and turns it, things into a little bit of a thriller. I think, it, weirdly enough, the thriller elements almost had me bored a little bit by, by the time we got to the end. I think they're just super convoluted. We get introduced to a couple of new characters who, you know, we don't really care too much about, at least not as much as we care about sort of the central relationship between um, Alex Wolf and Imogen Poots. So I think that, unfortunately, they, they couldn't quite stick the landing. Um, but I do think that this movie is worth seeing. And I think mainly, you know, you mentioned the cinematography. I think it is really strong. Um, that's that's one element. But mainly it's the performances, right? I think that um, you mentioned Nev Campbell. She makes an impact in, in a small role. You know, she's only in the first 30 minutes of the film. But I thought that she um, made the most of that role. Uh, but then Alex Wolf and, and especially Imogen Poots, I think, are, are really, really strong here. There are two, you know, promising young actors that, of course, I had seen in in other projects and that was their names being attached to this was probably one of the main things that like drew my eye to this movie in the first place because i don't know if i would have come across this otherwise but um they're both fantastic here um i think that maybe they've both done some disappointing roles or projects recently but they they really bounced back here um with with their roles here i think very very different characters with um you know, the, the, the different levels of uh, magnetism, I guess you will say, that uh, they bring to their roles. I'll, I'll leave other comments for later, but um, I think that they're, they're really, really strong. And um, like I said, when the movie focuses on their, their central relationship, I think is when it is at its best. So yeah, you know, this is not gonna be a fun watch like Valley Girl, the movie we talked about last week was. Um, certainly, you know, we're going for polar opposites there, but, um, I am glad that this movie is out there. And I, I think that anyone who sees it will have a hard time scrubbing certain images um, and ideas from their mind. So uh, I think ultimately it is successful at what it's trying to do. Yeah. When, when you brought this up last week as the movie we should think about doing for this week, not, not that we have that many things to choose from uh, in all reality, but when you brought this up last week, I was like, man, this is going to be a tough watch, uh, you know, with everything that's going on. And, you know, now we're two and a half months into social isolation. It's not like people are really in that upbeat of a mood. I mean, I mean, your birthday and graduation was this weekend. Is this really how you wanted to spend your weekend? But the truth is, is that in, in spite of all that, I, I did really find a lot of this this film really moving. I think that it's a really strong film. And it's one of those where I just feel like it's so clear what they did wrong and so clear what they could have done to make this. I'm not even kidding. Like This could have been a five-star movie. I mean, there are so many parts of this film that are really, really strong. And then you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I totally agree. When you inject this sort of thriller element in the last act of the film, it just completely dissolves. Like the movie just seems just completely to lose track of itself. I'm not even sure. Like, I'm curious if like some studio, like I'm, I'm, I'm I think so much about the business side of things. If some studio sees this like super downer opioid drama. I mean, this is a pretty indie film. So I, I don't know what the negotiations were like in terms of funding the, funding the movie and whatnot, but it makes you wonder if some producer 
looks at the script and he's like, oh, this is too too depressing. Get, get some thriller elements into this and we'll make it. Uh, because it just seems like, especially with the first act of the film, it just seems so out of place for this movie to go to towards a crime, a, a kind of a crime thriller element. And, and it is the part of the film that I think I like the least and I have the most problem with because almost everything else, Scott, I'm not going to lie, I, I found it really powerful. It's not as good as Beautiful Boy or The Florida Project in terms of talking about either opioid addiction or an underrepresented group of people. I think both of those films are better, but there's lots to like. I think I'm even more high. Maybe I'm just a, a nut for cinematography. I don't know. But the four by three uh, yeah. cinematography uh, to choose, you know, choosing that um, aspect ratio really makes things more vertical. Obviously, if you just think about the dimensions of it, and I think what that means is that you just can see less of what's going on on the screen and makes it allows you to get a lot more up and close into both Alex Wolf, but also um, Imogen Poots' character as well, and, and some key moments. And I think that is essential for the atmosphere and the tone of the film. And for me, it's one of those things that you talk about haunting shots and things that you can't get out of your mind. It's some of those really like, I don't even know, like like blurred shots that are like crossing over from one scene to another, usually around yeah. some sort of, usually implying some sort of high and things like that, that the characters are getting on that or I think are really powerful shots. I think there's some really emotional shots as well, especially in the first 30, 45 minutes, because I mean, when I first started watching this film, you know, we get to the, the first act of the film and you know, his Nev Campbell's, uh, which is Alex Wolf's mom dies. You're like, wow. I mean, this movie's off to an incredible start. Cause I found so much of that at the beginning, really, really moving. And I think the performances from Wolf and uh, Campbell and Poots are, are all really, standout performances and we talked last week about valley girl where there wasn't really a standout performance at all at least for me i know for you maybe you felt a little bit differently but for the for me it's like there are three incredibly strong performances uh in this movie and i just wish that someone had not just erased that thriller element out of the film because i think if you take that out uh it's really strong the relationship between both Alex Wolf and his mom and Alex Wolf and Imogen Poots. I think those are the two strongest character driven moments because I mean, I'm completely hooked about this, you know, kid's relationship with his mom who's dying and you can see what's happening in front of you. And you can see that, you know, obviously like, like, you know, as soon as the movie starts, you know, this, that this mom is going to die. It's not, it's not hidden at all, uh, nor should it be because I think it's watching that relationship come to an end in that way. I think, uh, is really powerful because they build up this loving relationship to them. And then there is that breaking point, you know, right before she does die. Yeah. There's that hard cut to like w when they're just like laying in the bed, it seems like everything is, is going to be okay. And yeah. then all of a sudden there's a hard cut and he's just at her funeral. I thought that was really yeah. effective. <laughs> yeah, no, it is really effective. And I found a lot of the visual at not just cinematography, but like the visual design of the film mixed with like the sound, the sound editing, here overlapping sounds from different scenes or really taking the sound from one scene and overlapping it right with the it's like the scenes are blurring together yeah yeah and, and i thought that was awesome i haven't really seen that done too much in the way that it's done and i thought it was great and so i think there's just so much to love and really admire about this film like you said i don't think anyone's going to really enjoy watching this movie but obviously i mean that's okay there's nothing wrong with that and overall i i couldn't recommend more about two thirds of this film and not even, I don't even mean that from a runtime perspective, it's like two thirds of the components of this film. And then just that last third in terms of the genre bending take it has towards the end. It's just like, it's kind of mind boggling even why it went that direction. I mean, I think that like, I think they're obviously trying to, to say that this type of, you know, there, there are complicated consequences to becoming, yeah, um, you know, addicted to, which include, you know, be, getting involved in crime, perhaps, because that's what mm -hmm. you you often have to do to procure these drugs in the first place. That's a good point. Um, but yeah, but I mean, like, it, I think they just got a little carried away with the way that they um, wanted to bring that element into it, because, yep. you know, you have guns being pointed at people and, you know, this character of Jimmy that gets introduced to, um, yeah, it just se seems to only be there to sort of kick the thriller plot into gear. So, yeah, I think between, it, I will say, I don't know if you ever saw Beautiful Boy Scott, but like that movie also yeah. includes some crime elements and there's no, there's no thriller part to it. And I think that it, it conveys the, 
the life that you can descend into with that. Cause I mean, that's obviously based on a true story. Um, so I think it really conveys that in a really powerful way. And I think this one, like you said, just went a little bit overboard, but in spite of that, I still really like, and we can talk more about this, but I still really like the symmetry of the movie. And we talk about it, its endings versus its beginnings as, um, Alex Wolf's, sorry, as Imogen Poots, uh, kind of becomes visually, um, and behaviorally his mom. And I think there's obvious reasons for that. I think, that's not even particularly that subtle, but I, I really like that the film goes that direction. Um, and we can talk more about that when we get to it. But with that, Scott, I'd love to kind of jump into these performances. We've been talking a lot about them and already kind of heaping a lot of praise onto them, but would love to get more of your in-depth thoughts. Uh, and we could start with either Alex Wolf or Imogen Poots. Where would you like to start? Let's start with Alex Wolf. I think he's the lead um, yep. here, you'd have to say. And um, I think it's a really effective performance. You know, I, I, believed this the sort of tender scenes between him and him and the mom early on but also i think that once she passes away is when his performance gets to take on some new dimensions obviously and i mean he, he becomes withdrawn right obviously he, he uh becomes addicted to her supply that's exactly what happens that's how he becomes involved in all of this but you know he's he's kind of an empty vessel looking for you know that gap that his mom filled in his life because she was really the only person he had I mean, he has this girlfriend as well but um there, there seems to be a distance between and i think that that's what makes imogen poot's character work because she is the type of person who absolutely would fill that gap in in alex wolf's life because she has this sort of magnetism about her. I mean, she's obviously very troubled. She obviously um, has. She's bad news. Yeah, she is. Um, she, you know, she, she has the same problems that his mom had, but she's also involved with all of these, you know, unseemly characters and, um, you know, a, a life of crime and just this, the shipment and everything of, of these drugs. And um, she, she has her hand in a lot of different um, jars. Um, and but but like i said she has that magnetism about her that like still draws you in despite even even though you know she's troubled like you you would you believe because of um her personality that um you know really shines through that um alex wolf would naturally be drawn to her not just because he's looking for anything after his mom dies but because there is something specific about this person um you know that that uh, maybe maybe reminds him of his mom at an earlier stage. You know before she, uh, you know became became too addicted or be before she was um, stricken by the cancer. I don't know, but um, obviously that is that is a theme there that you're, you're talking about how the the two characters seem to blend together um, in certain moments. And so yeah, I just thought that they were they were really effective performances. I thought that their chemistry together worked really well um, and they they show two sort of different sides of this crisis i guess um the the, the person who is like sort of just um getting into uh, or just just starting to experience what these drugs can do um whereas imogen poots is you know she she's been around the block and she's sort of giving him tips about what to do what you know not to do how how to take these drugs in the most I mean, responsible if there is a responsible way so that, um, you know, you don't OD or whatever, because, you know, you get the sense that she's she's seen plenty of people who um, ha probably have OD. So um, the the dynamic totally worked for for the, me between these two characters. And yeah, re really strong performances like um, Imogen Poots is someone I, I'm glad to see her bounce back here because she was in my worst worst movie of last year black christmas um but i have been a fan of hers ever since green room and roadies and a bunch of stuff that she did that i really like so i'm, I'm glad to see that black christmas may have just been sort of a, a blip on the radar yeah i i really like i said already really love both of these performances i think alex wolf and imogen poots but i'll start with alex wolf but this really brings i think some really special energy to this role I, like i can't quite put my finger on it but something about well i think when you watch him in several different things too i haven't seen him as many things but i imagine it might have even been similar in, in in his performance from hereditary or something like that but when you watch him in this he just i feel like he just really brings something intangible and special to this performance i think it's like the way he holds himself carries himself i was reading a few reviews that they think this this is kind of like a 
I don't know, like a kind of a bland performance, but I really found it anything, but I, I think that he really kind of goes through the world and this character goes through the world without very much agency. Like the, the life that, that this character of Henry has lived is like, yes, he went to you know, middle school, high school, whatever, but he's put his life on hold to take care of his mother who ultimately isn't able, you know, whether she succumbs to cancer or whether she succumbs to addiction, like I was saying earlier, I'm not sure it really matters for like the tailspin that it sends him into. It does matter in a larger context, I think, of the story and watching this sort of like Im- imagery of of um, Imogen Poots' character becoming his mother uh, visually. But I think that this performance is is really powerful in, in its lack of agency. He really feels like a lot of things happen to him, right? He doesn't do very much. And I think that that is very intentional. And I think that speaks to your point as someone who's getting swept up and taken away by this exposure, this very raw exposure to opioids, because I mean, you can, I mean, I think there is another movie or another argument made that even people with lots of agency can be completely swept away by opioids as well. It's not like you have to be, you know, this weak person to be taken, you know, to be taken advantage of by a, a drug like fentanyl or, or other opioids. But I think that that there is a lot of purpose and intention in the way this character is written and performed. And I think there's like maybe one underexplored element is the sort of religion that he has, because obviously it seems like he's a a fairly devout Jewish individual at the beginning of the film. But really, once, you know, once his mom dies, it seems like it's not even that he questions it or casts it aside. It just kind of disappears from the film a little bit. Um, But yeah, I, I don't. I, I was just gonna say I don't know if we were even meant to believe that he he was really that devout. I mean, we see the one scene of him praying, but I think it's almost more out of desperation That's than true. it is Be- because you know she confronts him about it, and he just like can't even really say any reason for why he was praying. He won't admit that he was doing it because of her, yeah. and she is acting like it's kind of a little bit strange that he is doing this in, in the first place. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. That's actually that actually is a really good point. But that kind of falls away a little bit. And again, like as much as he's swept up in taking care of his mom, he then gets swept up in this character of Imogen Poots. Uh, what's her name again? I've completely forgotten her name. Anna. 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 Yeah, that's right. Anna. Yeah. So she he gets really swept up in, in Anna. And yeah, it, it's kind of I think you watch this a little bit. And maybe if you don't have I mean, I don't personally have any experience with it. Uh, like with, with with opioids, things like that. But I think you watch this film and part of you has to wonder how they like how an individual like how it, it's so obvious that something is a bad decision and yet they just can't help but be magnetized to it on such a on such a large and, and really serious scale. But it's I think that it's cut Jim's life. <laughs> honestly, it is similar, though, although having Howard and and Henry yeah. couldn't be more different characters, probably, although they're both Jewish. They have that in common. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I, I think that, that, yeah, there's just something about the way this character is performed and, and the way that the camera shows this character that I think just really is powerful. And I think that I, I can't really imagine anyone else playing really this character. I can't think of another person who would be, who would have been better in this role than Alex Wolf. And, and I mean that to say, and I was actually, I think it was actually Jeff Snyder from Collider was saying this the other day on, on the Snyder Cut. when he, I can't remember if he was talking about Castle on the Ground or some other project that Alex Wolf was rumored uh, to be working in, but that he brings really Robert De Niro vibes to movies. He's not saying that he's as good as Robert De Niro yet, obviously, but something about the mole uh, on his upper lip and just the energy that he brings to films uh, might be kind of leading to something really special once you know, he, he really gets, you know, hits the big, you know, hits the big roles and gets the chance to really show off how powerful an actor he is. I don't know whether that's true or not. I think I, I kind of felt that energy in this movie, if I'm being honest, and I hope that he's able to capitalize on the future because it's awesome. And then his relationship with Anna, with, with uh, Imogen Poots' character through most of the film and switching over to talking about that role, you know, in a completely different, it's a completely different kind of performance. And when you put those two together on the screen, I don't know if it could accentuate the positive elements of those performances any better. And, and I can't, pr- again, praise really enough the kind of frenetic chaos of this character more similar. I mean, we're talking about uncut gems more similar to Howard, I think (laughs) than than you probably like to admit like this, this character is just really full of chaotic energy and not in a good way, in a really bad way, making constantly bad decisions that make you pound your head against a wall, maybe more understandable bad decisions. when you think about how this person is an addict, just trying to really just take advantage of, of, 
anything she can to get her next score, to get her next high. That's maybe a little bit more relatable than than the gambling addiction, although they are both addictions, gambling addiction that Howard kind of faces in Uncut Gems and the, and the way that particular addiction is portrayed. Although, again, I think there are a lot of similarities. But j- yeah, just really strong performance. And one of the things that I really liked is almost the, I, I use this word hesitantly, but the bipolar nature of all of these like image and Poots's character and then also some of the supporting cast who are also you know other people in this op- the, this world of opioids and addiction and just how you go from one scene where not unlike his mother when she was kind of demanding the fentanyl patch from him that Anna is you know berating him like why are you still here what are you doing and then he like goes back to his apartment he pops pops a pill comes back in the next scene she's like being super nice to him things like that. And I think the bipolar nature of some of these performances is done really well. And I think it really is just really, I guess, powerful to see, you know, how these characters with the exception of Alex Wolf, I guess are really, they, they care about other people, but they also don't care about other people. And that's the drugs. Like that is the opioids driving you to be, Always having to be self-absorbed to get your next high to prevent the withdrawal. Like if she can't get methadone, getting to, you know, having to find another pill, things like that. And, and I think that that is just a really powerful performance. Yeah. I mean, and it does happen to Alex Wolf in some sense as well, because like the mm-hmm. fact that he does put his mother behind him, like so quickly in a sense, right. The fact that he is giving his phone to giving her phone to, to Imogen Poots. He um, yeah. is like, taking her supply of pills, whatever she, he tries to go to, you know, the pharmacy and collect her prescription, even though she is deceased. Um, it's, it's consumed everything, including his, you know, any possible like memories of his mother, you know, anything that he could hold on to, maybe that would give him a memory, uh, of his mother. He's, he's so quickly willing it, willing to abandon it, to get involved with, with Imogen Poots and this whole life that she is living. Yeah, I think like he, he's dealing with trauma in a really unhealthy and negative way, obviously. And you just kind of wish that, you know, he didn't have the opioids to make the bad decision with. Uh, because if they're not in the cabinet, he's probably not going to be able to take, like, he's probably not going to go hit the neighbor up next door for a pill. You know, this just doesn't seem like the kind of character that he is. Maybe, maybe who knows? But um, yeah, it just seems like his his life really falls apart pretty quickly. And before we do move on to the plot, because there are some things I want to talk about there, are there any members of the supporting cast? I mean, we've talked a little bit about Nev Campbell that you want to call out for particularly strong performances. I guess the only other person who I'd briefly mention is, uh, is Keir Gilchrist who plays Polo Boy. Um, yeah. Who has is the best line the, in the movie. Which one was that? Uh, it's, it's about, it's about Imogen Poots' character. I can, I can look it up. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did, it just didn't, uh, I just didn't remember it, but yeah, I think he's, he's pretty good as like this, like wannabe tough guy, right. Who like, um, thinks, thinks he's like the hard drug dealer, you know, on the, on the block, but, um, gets put in his place pretty easily. Anytime like a physically bigger person comes around like Jimmy, for example, which is Tom Collins character. Um, and, uh, so I thought that he did a pretty good job, um, but these characters—it's it, hard to disassociate these characters from the fact that they do mainly mainly appear in you know what is sort of the part that we both agree is the less successful part of the movie. But um, I don't know that the performances are necessarily a reason for that. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those hard things where when, when you get down to the supporting cast, I mean, even Nev Campbell, I think she does a really good job. It's kind of hard to really capture the attention, but there are some really interesting characters on the screen. And, and I guess so the quote I was talking about was when they're at the party and she's trying to you know get get a score, basically, and she's about to go walk to the back room with this character. And he turns around to Alex Wolf and says, you know, this girl, she'd sell your soul for something that's that this big. That's probably going to kill her. Um, and I think that's yeah, that was a really strong line. Obviously not the way I delivered it, but if you watch it in the film. <laughs> then it's uh it's, it's a pretty good one so yeah yeah i don't know if i have too much more to add about the supporting cast and with that then it probably makes sense just to go ahead and, and and talk a little bit more about the plot i think one of those things that i said or one of the things that i said that i think really captures this movie well is that it's 
predictable, right? And one of the things that I was a little bit worried about when, you know, we're 30, 45 minutes in the film is that, all right, man, everything about this film is like pretty predictable. Like the mom is going to die. He's going to get addicted to drugs. How, like, what is the hook to actually like, keep me engaged in the plot? And I think as I sat with it a little bit more, I realized that I think because it is predictable, that is what makes it just so powerful in some ways. And I, I think the word that I used at the beginning was like hauntingly predictable. And I think that, I think that is for me, the kind of the right way to describe it. I don't think there's anything really surprising that happens in terms of the addiction piece. I mean, there's some surprises that happen with the thriller element in that they go to the links that they go to with that piece of the film. But for me, I think the most, again, the most powerful parts are just the direction it takes um, going towards and doing things that like, you know, are going to happen, but even though, you know, they're going to happen, you can't stop. And they still hit you with the same force, I think. And I don't know if you felt the same about kind of the macro level plot that's happening. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a good point in that, um, you know, it's predictable and yet it, it goes on on a large scale on, uh, you know, a, a daily, weekly basis all around the country. And, um, even though even the people involved themselves may know exactly where their path will take them and that, you know, there are potentially ruinous consequences at the end of this path, they can't stop. Right. Because there's, there's something, um, you know, physical chemical at play here that is just yeah. overpowering every, you know, sense of, of good judgment that they, they may possibly have. And so, yeah, I think that that, you know, that, that predictability um, does leave a, a strong impact. And um, I didn't necessarily see that as a problem, though. Maybe the, the filmmakers did. And that's why they decided to, to mix things up in the, the final part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, some people called this movie boring because of how predictable it was just from the reviews that I was reading. But I, again, I didn't really feel that way about what was going on. And, and one of the things that I think kind of goes along with that predictability, and we kind of started talking about earlier, is really this notion that the film, and I think this is a point that you could, you could either like this or you could not like this. I think it's interesting that it decides to go this way. But the film really goes towards this direction of these, you know, the key addicts in the film, right? You have Anna, you have Henry, and you have Rebecca, which is Henry's mom. They all do the same things. They all kind of become the similar or same people. And they represent that through actions, through imagery in the film. And that's one of the things that I think that is the most interesting visual thing that they do with the film. I mean, you have an obvious one where like he kind of meets Anna. Henry meets Anna at, you know, at CVS or whatever the Canadian equivalent would be. I'm not sure what the drugstore is, but meets her at the pharmacy and she's trying to essentially lie and get this prediction or this prescription filled, although that's for methadone, so it's not exactly the same. But uh, and he and later on in the movie, he, he goes up and tries to get and his mom's oxycontin prescription filled. So again, kind of overlapping behaviors. You have these sort of raw emotional outbursts when someone is being denied, you know, they're high or they're in withdrawal. You see that with uh, Nev Campbell's character right before she dies. You see that from Anna several points. Uh, throughout the movie I think you see sort of these kind of raw outbursts when she's coming off her highs and then there's obviously the most visually striking element of it I think is when you know yes actually I guess to back up a second you know he Henry gives Anna his mom's phone she takes his dress or her dress sorry not his dress her dress like uh, Anna takes Rebecca's dress later on in the movie at the end uh, I think this is the most striking one I think we'll just kind of jump straight there at the end of the film, you have this kind of imagery. Honestly, you could have showed this. It could have been the exact same shot from the beginning of the film. I don't even like, honestly, it could have been where he takes this little, I guess, tray of uh, a crushed pill, a crushed Oxycontin or methamphetamine, yeah. whatever it might be, this crushed pill into the, his mom's room where Anna is sitting because she's about to, I, I think, essentially inject it, inject it because she's going to uh, shoot it up. But yeah, and there's this imagery of her, of him being the doctor from earlier on in the film, walking into the room and handing her the tray. And I just found that incredible, like visually very interesting and an interesting choice. I'm not even sure if I like or or don't like uh, the choice to kind of portray addicts as being all very similar and very samey. But the notion that they're exhibiting the same behaviors, and in this one case, mm -hmm. for, at least in Alex Wolf's mind, vision, you know, perspective, because this film is is from his perspective. 
that she is becoming she is becoming his mother and i think that that is really a really interesting i guess way to close out the film and also kind of a recurring theme throughout the film as well yeah i mean i don't know that it's i mean i guess they are the same but i think it's more just like that it's all cyclical right and that mm. um i mean that that is how alex wolf gets affected right it's, it's the cycles of addiction because his mom is you know becomes a victim to it and yet that can't stop him from getting um, addicted to the supply that he had to, to give to her and the supply that he knew was harming her all this time um and you know there was probably someone like that in, in anna's life as well that maybe maybe um passed it down to her and so i think it just portrays sort of the the cycles of addiction maybe that that go on and the, the different consequences of, of those but yeah i mean i thought that the the phone the phone part was effective was really effective for me i thought it just not only the that he you know that he even gives it to her in the first place but that then he gets a text right from from the phone like that he hasn't changed the contact it says like mom it says like sleep tight henry or something like basically something that his mom would have said to him probably um mm -hmm. back when she was still living and then you know the fact that he has to then go in and delete the content and contact and replace it with anna i mean that that's that, again that's maybe that's not the most subtle um image ever but like deleting her and replacing her with Anna I mean that's that's what this this whole next part of the movie is about and so I thought that uh, that was a clever way of doing that yeah agreed anything else you want to add uh, about the plot I mean we can't we could talk more about the thriller piece but I'd rather just not harp too much on the negative because it's not that it's it's bad I mean there are parts where just like it's very predictable again it's it, that element is very predictable but not in a enriching way i think and ultimately it feels like it's a bit of a disconnect with some of the 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 way the rest of the movie is portrayed i just don't feel like it's super worthwhile to spend too much time on it but any thoughts you want to add not really i mean i, I think I'm, I'm mostly in agreement with you that I mean, I don't think that, like, I think it could have been even worse, right? I think that it could have, like, cheapened yeah. the the subject matter if, if it had, you know, re really leaned heavily into it. Um, but I don't think that that happened. I mean, like, I think we were still, clearly we were still impacted by the, you know, the really substantive part of the movie about addiction. Um, yeah. And so I don't think it, it, you know, was as bad as it could have been of, you know, taking away from the the gravity of that um you know problem and situation um but it just it did feel unnecessary and like they were they were trying to vary things up just to to keep people interested which i don't think was necessary yeah because i i think if, if you just take the thriller piece because they had been sort of alluding to that element of the film earlier on and i think just the allusions to it earlier on were were sufficient enough to communicate the crime that you often end up going you know the links that you go to to get your next high to, to score your next pills, things like that. I think that was effective enough without them, you know, having to pull out guns and go, go into, you know, go into a, uh, you know, this abandoned building for this drug deal or whatever. And, and ultimately you're right. It didn't, it didn't end up taking too much away from the film. And I think the reason for that is that it still, I think really hammers home. Sorry for the bad pun there. Probably hammers home at the end of the film. I think that last key imagery and really circles back around to the relationship between Henry and Anna right in the last moments to kind of wash that sort of bad taste that you might have from the thriller elements of the film away. And so for that reason, I think that's maybe why it doesn't ultimately detract overly so from the film. And I was worried that it was going to, right? Cause it, it I mean, full, full spoilers, I suppose, but like, it seems like everyone except Alex Wolf has died at the end of the film. And the fact that, you know, that Anna is still alive and is back at his apartment. I think, in some ways, you're like, well, maybe it's bad that she like got away and she's not dead. But I think that for the purpose of the movie and and re re I guess kind of highlighting its key themes right before it does end, I think it's really important that she's still alive. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. All right, Scott, I think that'll just about do it for the discussion. What is your favorite scene or moment from this really uplifting comedy, Castle in the Ground? <laughs> Yeah, favorite scene is hard, but I mean, I, I I liked the phone bit. You you mentioned the the hammer there. I think that that is a really visceral mo like moment when Alex Wolf um, has like this hammer that like 
had drugs on it and like he, he is it. like licks it yeah like i had a, a visceral reaction to that and like also um later he went after he runs out of pills and he can't get any more he like he's going through the trash and he finds like a little plastic wrapper or something the that had patch. A little, he found the yeah, patch yeah right and he's like just putting he it in his mouth it. and everything yeah yeah it like it, it again i had i had a visceral re visceral reaction to that i think that those were some of the images that struck me the the strongest from the sort of the addiction part of this and so um i thought that they did a really effective job of, you know, portraying the, again, the links that you'll go to to get that next time. Yeah, those are really good, really good moments, I think, in the film. And, and I think really speak just what I was saying earlier about how powerful the performance is and how, again, the energy that that kind of brings to the role. I mean, honestly, it sounds like what you described sounds like something that, like Joker would do, <laughs> would do in Joker or something like that. Uh, but this is done to, in my opinion, a much, much better effect than anything that Joaquin Phoenix did in Joker. But oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I think for me, I think I kind of spilled the beans on the moment that I found kind of the best. Cause it's, just, it's just this line of the film about, you know, the, that uh, polo boy or is his name Richard? Is that his, is that his actual name? I yes. Think? Yeah. Richard, yeah, Richard kind of turns and says, because it's so casual and offhanded and like, but but honestly also feels really true and, and really to the point. And, you know, maybe it's. I could see how some people might not like this this line all that much, but I think it really speaks to me. It's just that like, hey, kid, like you really shouldn't be doing this, but you're doing it anyway. So I'm just going to give you another free piece of advice about who this girl is. Like she doesn't care about you. She cares about getting the next score. And I think the way that it was delivered in the moment. And I just found it, again, interesting that so many people are trying to give. It seems like you're trying to give Henry good advice, but then don't really do much to actually, you know, get him out of the situation but, and, and don't follow their own advice even well, because yeah. it yeah polo boy i mean even though he seems to understand that she's bad news like he still can't really escape her her well, arc her circle he's still drawn to her yeah i mean he's also making money off her and and, and getting sex from her but that's um well yeah that's that's what i was gonna say but. Yeah, yeah yeah so he's he's got more of a hook in it in, in that situation i think than than henry's character does but to your point i mean i don't i don't disagree with what you're saying either Mm -hmm. so. All right, let's put a score on it, Scott. What are you giving Castle on the Ground? Uh, I'm going to give it a 7.3. I mean, it, it, it is really strong in some elements, but it's hard to ignore the unevenness. I, like, I don't think I can just excuse, um, you know, a not insignificant portion of the movie, you know, a, a solid 30, 35 minutes at the end, you know, be, just because the rest of the movie is really, really potent. Um, you know, if anything, I think that makes that a bit more disappointing. So yeah. uh, I, I am going to dock it a little bit for that, but it's still it's still worth watching 7.3. Yeah, I mean, we talk all the time about, um, you know, m movies that I think are, are potent at times and then kind of take away from themselves that movies that might have, again, like five star elements to it, but are weighed down by a couple one star elements. And, and those sometimes are the most frustrating films uh, to watch. For me, I definitely felt that frustration that you're talking about there. I think it ultimately affected me a little bit less, or, or maybe I just found some of the other elements of the film so powerful that it did outweigh most of it. So I'm actually going to end up being higher than you, and I'm, I'm giving it an 8.2. Wow, something that never happens is you giving a higher score than me. Especially not one so so much higher than you. But yeah, I guess it technically did happen. Uh, you, you gave a, a film like a 3.0, and I gave it a 4.0, I think. So there yeah, you yeah. go, yeah. But at the upper end of the scale, yeah, it doesn't happen too often. All right, That's Scott, let's, uh, let's take a short break. And when we return... We'll be discussing the announcement from Disney that Hamilton will be coming to Disney Plus rather than theaters, and as well as some hot casting and directorial news from the, this past week. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As I mentioned before the break, Scott, we'll start with your piece of news uh, for the week. Something that came out, I think, like pretty much like right after we'd recorded our last episode. So it's been a minute since this was officially announced. But that doesn't mean you're any less hype about it even nine, ten days later. So why don't you tell us about Disney's decision to bring Hamilton to Disney Plus on the 3rd of July rather than releasing it in theaters next summer? Yeah, no, this really came out of nowhere. I mean, 
like you said, I mean, was it next time? I thought it was like next fall that this was supposed to be released in theaters, but yeah, maybe. Um, I, th- I think so. But regardless, like because of that, like I said, it, it came out of nowhere because we just got the, the news not that long ago that it was going to be released in theaters and I think November, October, sometime in there. Um, no, but, it was definitely 2021, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah 2021. Okay. But okay. I, it was just what part of 2021. But gotcha. um, because of that, it just it felt you know jarring that they were revising it all of a sudden but i mean again quarantine changes a lot of a lot of stuff um i think maybe they're seeing the potential that um releasing this um during quarantine and releasing it on july 3rd right on independence day um i mean i don't know if it's a weekend or not but you know what i mean it, it, right there the day before july 3rd independence the friday day. yep okay independence day weekend um you know the the potential that that could have is is huge i mean i think this is something that even casual fans of musicals um, are gonna want to watch just because of you know it's the, the pop culture zeitgeist. I mean, everyone yeah, knows per, Hamilton. Yeah, the profound impact that that Hamilton had on our culture for the year, year and a half. You know, when it was in that run with the original Broadway cast, um, and you know, it's a way to get something out of your Disney Plus subscription, which right now I'm not getting a ton of mileage out of. Um, you know. T- to be fair. Um, and so I think that um, this is a good move for Disney. I mean, like, you know, this, they filmed this thing in 2015, 2016 or whatever. So it's not like there was a, you know, a huge reason to just wait and release this thing in, in theaters next year. I mean, I'm sure that they have well, had, there, there is a huge reason, but we'll get to that in a second. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure there are reasons, but I just mean like, it's not like they have to finish the film or anything. Yeah. Um, the, the film has been finished for a while. I would You're imagine. right. It's like Valley Girls. Yeah. But um, I, we know what we're getting with this, thankfully, unlike Valley Girl. But um, True. I, I think that this is a smart move for Disney. Um, and I think that families... Uh, in particular, will be watching this movie, uh, you know, to celebrate Independence Day weekend while they're at home in quarantine. Um, and I mean, I'm really excited because I, uh, you know, I did have a, a bootleg of the original Broadway cast back in the day, but it's not quite the same as watching, you know, professionally produced, um, you know, f- film of this whole thing. So I, I can't wait. Yeah, it's supposed to be like immersive too. It's supposed to it's supposed to innovate the way like musical theater is shown on the screen. Because I've actually seen, I've actually gone to the theater a couple times in the past few years and watched plays and musicals that have been recorded in previous years. Like I watched Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet in theater, mm-hmm. um, which was, I thought, I mean, I didn't actually like that production all that much, um, but it was still cool to be able to go and, and do that. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about this. And you're right. I, there's a, I think there's a, several different things that go into this. First, I will say I'm very surprised they are putting this on Disney Plus. They paid $75 million for the rights to this film. And the fact that they are putting that direct to Disney Plus, I think, is a very interesting business decision because maybe I'm wrong, but I think that they would easily make that money back by putting this out in theaters. Although maybe they don't make it all back if you think about marketing budget because they would have to market it, obviously, putting it into theaters and things like that. And uh theaters are just i think i think that the schedule is just going to get so crowded that it, it wouldn't at this point kind of eat away at, at that box office that it would partic- potentially collect yeah well it is really long too is another thing like it, i mean obviously it's a you know it's a broadway musical they are long but it's like probably going to be a, you know three to three and a half hours when this thing is um released and so if there are people like me out there right who have trouble working up the energy to go sit and in a theater and watch something for three, three and a half hours. Um, it, the, the case may be different if they have it on at home on Disney plus and can watch it, you know, in, in installments or whatever. Sure. But the number of people who watch on Disney plus don't really matter. The number of people who watch it in theaters do. So I, I think that I'm, st- yeah. I'm, I'm still a little bit, a little bit surprised by that, but ultimately I think that there's several other things that go into it. And one of them is certainly right that they kind of need a win with Disney Plus. They're getting hammered by by I think people a lot right now by their lack of content on the platform. And at this point, especially with quarantine and everything, there's probably not much left on Disney Plus that people haven't seen if you if they've been a subscriber since what October or November or whenever it, I forget exactly when it debuted uh, last year. So like late, you know third fourth quarter last year, and they just haven't put any. They just like really have not put much on that platform, but this is a big win and you're right. 
putting it out around Independence Day, especially when we we're going to get in the heights originally around that time as well. I think they're going to capture uh, a, a lot with that and win some goodwill points. Your question around, you know, you know why there's no real reason why it hasn't gone to theater because it has been done and it can be brought at any time. It's not like they have to finish the film. I mean, I think that they, I think that there probably is just a deal that Disney has with Broadway that as soon as they release this in, you know, this, this production online where you can just view it anytime you want to the demand the, is going to go down. The yeah. demand and the value of <laughs> Hamilton tickets on Broadway is going to drop dramatically. And so I think, I don't know if there was some sort of, and that's another actually reason why I'm surprised they're doing this. Cause I'm surprised that this isn't a deal that Disney has made with Broadway um and and their productions i mean maybe maybe they renegotiated that once quarantine started to happen things like that but i'm surprised that wasn't literally a contract that disney had with you know whoever owns the rights to the broadway musical i don't know if that's lin-manuel miranda or whoever it might be who ultimately has like the the who they made the deal with to, to be able to do the production things like that um so over, overall it's a surprisingly good pr move i think uh, for Disney, not just uh, or, or I guess throwing away some potential revenue there in in, in faith of or, or in in exchange for some goodwill and some faith, I think, from their Disney Plus audience, and I think that's some some goodwill in terms of the Disney Plus that they that they kind of really need. Yeah, because I mean, I I feel like this is the type of thing too that people will watch multiple times. So um, yeah. having having it on there, you know, permanently, I think is is a good. Yep. Uh, good move for the for the reasons that you've said, and I I mean I plan to watch it if not July third shortly afterwards. So yeah, I mean, look, we'll probably review it on the podcast with the rate of movies coming out at this point. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can already tell you it's going to be a ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, forget about reviewing it. We can just sit in here and like wax lyrical until we're stupid about it. But yeah, anyway, yeah. The other thing here this week, Scott, is that it felt like it was like back to normal this past week with all the news that we got. I mean, we got all sorts of news and a lot about movies that we already seen or we've already talked about a little bit. I mean, we got more news that Dakota Johnson is also joining this all-star cast of Olivia Wilde's next movie, Don't Worry, Darling. I think it's an, another great addition to that cast. We we heard the New Mutants might be getting a theatrical release still. August 28th is the release date. We'll see if that, if, uh, that one holds up. I don't know. Did we talk about Kate Blanchett and Jennifer Lawrence uh, or Kate Blanchett joining Jennifer Lawrence's next film directed by Adam McKay? Uh, yes. Yeah, so just like a lot of different stuff going on. Lord and Miller is going to be directing that Ryan Gosling astronaut movie that we talked about, I think maybe a couple months ago, but overall, I think one of the things that we did. Oh, also, and Jodie Comer might be starring in uh, the Furiosa prequel from George Miller. We'll see if her or Anya Taylor-Joy end up with that role. Hopefully they can fit both of them in, but we don't know. But the, the thing that I think is kind of the new piece uh, of news that, or not necessarily news. Cause I mean, this has been coming around a little bit around some casting news about who might play this role a little bit, but I don't think we've talked about it yet. And that is the potential re remake of Scarface. This past week, we learned that Luca Guadagno who directed probably most notably call me by your name, but also Suspiria uh, the year after call me by your name, I believe. And so, yeah, that, there's some big directing news this week because I think that's a big win for that film. Obviously, Brian De Palma directed the first remake of Scarface, which was originally a, a 1930s uh, film. Yeah, Howard Hawks directed. Yeah. yeah, Howard Hawks directing and and remade it, obviously, to the most notable version with Al Pacino in, in that lead role um, playing, uh, you know, the basically the rise of power of a Cuban drug lord in Miami. And this version, there's been a lot of rumors around who might be potentially playing that lead performance for a while. It sounded like Diego Luna, based off his performance in Narcos, Mexico, might be getting that role of Scarface. Then we heard that Michael B. Jordan might be getting the role as well, which would be a very different direction uh, for the film. We don't really know where that ultimately is going to land. It sounds like most recently it's it might be Michael B. Jordan. But we do know that no matter what end, ends up or what direction it ends up going, Luca Guadagnino is going to be at the helm. Scott, what do you think of this directing news? I think it's it's exciting. I mean, like I I've actually only seen Suspiria. I think of of his films, but I I need to watch Call Me by Your Name just because it's a movie that people love. One person I follow on Letterboxd has logged the movie thirty four times. But well, um, Scott, we can watch it. I haven't watched it either. You want to watch it for next week on the podcast? Sure, why not? Um, a bigger <laughs> splash is also a movie that um, I have wanted to see for a few years. But um, I think that Suspiria, like, even though I wasn't like head over heels for it, it's an incredibly well-made film. Like that was my yeah. one, 
impression coming out of it is, uh, you know, the, the directing, I think, is really. And like if, if you wanted to go back and watch the movie, I'm sure you could find so many layers in it. I just don't want to go back and watch it because it is very trippy and disturbing and just, you know, again, not not a movie you want to rewatch. But well, I think of he, Dakota Johnson. So true, that? true. Yeah. Uh, I think he is a very talented craftsman. And so I'm excited to see, you know, that I, I mean, I think he can bring something original and experimental to, you know, this this film that I mean, I, I love Scarface. I, I do the, the Brian De Palma version. I, I think in recent years, it's gotten a reputation as maybe being a bit overrated, but I don't feel that way. I think it is um, a, a really great crime film. And I think De Palma is a, is a really, really great director. Um, and so I think that they are doing it justice by getting someone um, like like Luca Guadagnino to do this and, and not, um, you know, I don't know, getting some hack like Todd Phillips to do this remake um, and, and not really do it justice. So I think that this you know at the at the very least i think by doing this they have justified perhaps doing another remake of, of scarface yeah i think it'll also be i mean look i i would be excited with either diego luna or michael b jordan in the role but i think if you are going to do another remake taking it a different direction i'm not entirely sure what that direction would be with you know a african-american lead role but taking it that direction and re-spinning it and exploring sort of new themes because obviously a huge part of scarface is this whole is the whole theme around immigrants and coming to america things like that and and developing your space in this sort of america as a melting pot culture and to see what they would do with that with an african-american lead they'd have to change up a lot of those themes i think and i think that could be a really interesting way to explore uh, with with a new remake, but I don't know if you if you feel differently. Well, I was just going to say that I mean, there's a lot of I mean, they, they basically did that between the 30s version and the 80s yeah, version exactly. because you know you had Paul Mooney, who is like a American actor, I believe, as like the the gangster making his rise in the Howard Hawks film, and then you know they transplanted that to this story of Cuban immigration with Al Pacino and everything, and into Palma's version. So yeah, there's no reason why they they can't do that again and tell. You know, a story maybe with a, a similar arc, but yeah. give it a a whole new flair because of the demographics and the setting and all of that. Yeah, it'll make you be. It's one of those things where I, it's one of those like the studio decisions that I question, like the authenticity of what they do. Where it's like if you call the film by any other name, it's probably like not that recognizable as Scarface. But just because they want the marketing and branding power of a film like Scarface and they have the rights to it, they're just going to call it Scarface and explore something new, have a similar arc and and call it a day. And I think that uh, they probably won't get knocked too hard, too hard for that. But it's definitely a move just to make more money off the film. Sure. <laughs> sure. All right, Scott. I think that should do it for episode 93 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? uh stay inside keep staying inside yeah i mean you can you can go out but you know just just be be smart about it like there are still cases you know rising across you know different states so um don't freaking go eat in a restaurant that's just that's that's the one that that makes me mad because it's so easy to get takeout like you were doing you know in in the weeks before um it was, it was actually, I mean, the restaurants were even open to where you could go eat in them. And so um, I, I just think it's it's very irresponsible and selfish to be doing that. But, um, you know, you can go get your haircut. I did it. Um, I have given you permission to go get your haircut so you can now do it. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Scarby Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at Media Plug Pods. Subscribe to our newsletter as well using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. We'd appreciate it so much if you contributed even at the $1 level. Again, www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Where we'd also appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with a review of the Paramount turned Netflix uh, studio romantic comedy comedy. I don't know. It's the Lovebirds with Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae. Until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.
Thank you.